Welcome. Well, welcome, everybody, uh, to the first in this year's uh, lecture series on Islam and uh, democracy. Um, our <coughs> guest speaker today is Martha Olcott from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, which is a think tank and a policy research center that has played a really important role in recent years uh, in informing the public and informing the government, too, we hope, uh, about the conditions and circumstances of uh, countries in the Muslim world as well as uh, other uh, parts of uh, the world. I've wanted to bring Martha Olcott here for a very long time, and I think this is maybe the fourth or fifth time uh, that I have invited her, but she always, she always seems to be uh, off in Central Asia. Um, I, I can get in touch with her out there. She responds to the emails and so forth. Um, but she's always on an extended research trip uh, at the time when I'm organizing this uh, seminar. So I've never actually been able to get her here before. So this is really a great opportunity, uh, partly because Martha Olcott herself uh, is such a knowledgeable person uh, on the countries about which she writes in Central Asia, but also because there's so few people uh, who are knowledgeable uh, about that uh, part of the world. So we all feel that we know something uh, about uh, the Arab Middle East and so forth, but uh, we don't think about Central Asia as uh, a part of the Muslim uh, world. And I particularly like it for my class too, uh, which is just starting uh, this uh, spring quarter because you all get to think about countries with names like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and so forth. So I can't even get past two of them. Um, uh, as countries on which you can write uh, a term paper uh, this quarter. So, so we get a good start both for the Mashan series and for my class with bringing in this whole other part of the Muslim world that we know so little about. Um, uh, Martha Olcott has a PhD from uh, the University of uh, Chicago. Uh, she has published extensively on uh, uh, polities of uh, uh, Central uh, Asia. Uh, and today she's going to talk about uh, how democratic institutions have been slow to take root in the states of uh, Central Asia. Uh, welcome, Martha Alcott, please. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let me turn on the speaker first. Um. Oh, it's on now. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, <laughs> still. Is it working? It, it must be working. I'm just having trouble getting my pocket to work. Okay. Oh. I still can't get my pocket to work. This gives you some idea of the quality of the technology that you're about to get. If I can't get this way. Okay. <coughs> since, <coughs> since the beginning of this season of revolution in the Middle East, those of us who have done Central, who do Central Asia or do many of the post-Soviet states have been asked sort of incessantly what is the likely impact of the Middle East revolutions on Central Asia? Is there a likely impact? Is, um, are the Central Asian countries going to be next? Um, and I've put together this talk, in a sense, I think, to try to highlight what, what the risks 
to stability in Central Asia are and how the situation compares to the Middle East. I should say at the onset that I think that the influence has been marginal. Okay, now I'm trying to do the clear. Okay, here. I'm starting with the map. Um, <coughs> my thesis is basically that the situation in the Middle East is likely to influence developments in Central Asia only on the margins. It has already influenced developments in Kazakhstan because after uh, Ben Ali was forced out in Tunisia, President Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan made the decision not to hold a referendum but to seek re-election in himself instead. But, and it definitely was, there was definitely a connection between the two events. Um, I know that because I have friends inside the government. Um, <clears throat> but I think overall the, that Central Asia is, is not influenced by events in the Middle East. That does not mean that there isn't a crisis of stability coming up in the region. But the reasons for it um, may be similar to those in the Middle East, but there's not a phenomenon of contagion. Um, I will argue, I mean, I taught Middle East politics at Colgate. The part of my life that wasn't included was that I am retired from Colgate and taught 27 years. And so the first 15 of them, I taught Middle East politics as well. And I started teaching Middle East politics in the 70s. And from the beginning to like now, everybody predicted instability in the Middle East. You have the same kind of situation in Central Asia. Since the beginning of independence 20 years ago, people have predicted instability in Central Asia. So in a sense, you have two <coughs> environments that are very, s that the analytic perspective has been very similar. And the causes of instability in, in Central Asia may ultimately be the same. Um, but, but the dynamic pushing for instability is a very different one. I'd like in the course of the next half hour to kind of go through what the major risks to stability are and draw out some of these comparisons. First, because I assume that the people in the room don't have a huge background on Central Asia, and for those that do, I apologize. Um, I'd like to at least go through the map and so you can understand <coughs> what the risks in the region are. Let me just spend three or four minutes introducing the region to you. Central Asia is um, these five countries here. You can't include, <coughs> I mean, if you include all of Kazakhstan, you dwarf the rest of the region. So it's always difficult to choose a map. Kazakhstan is the ninth largest country in the world, um, not in population, physical size. So it's really enormous. Um, it's ninth in a lot of things, but it is in physical size. Uzbekistan, is, it, it has about 16 million people, and you'll see it has oil and gas wealth. The Uzbekistan, which is in the middle here, is the size of California. Okay, so that gives you some sense of scale if, if you want to understand the size of this region. If this little bit in here is the size of California, that gives you a sense of, of the scale of everything else around it. Um, it's just about 30 million people today. And this is the Sirdaya River, and this is the Amudaya River, and these are the two major rivers of Central Asia. And the Uzbekistan controls virtually all the land in between these two rivers. And this is really, I can't do the Arabic, Mavarana. This is his, the historic uh, Islamic Central Asia. 
And this area is overwhelmingly Uzbek, so even if you go beyond the Uzbek borders, Uzbekistan has a large diaspora population or Iridenis population living beyond its borders. Tajikistan is right here. What Tajikistan is, and I wanted this map because you get the relief, because in understanding the security problems in the region, you really have to understand the inaccessibility of, of countries one to the other, to the world, second cities from capital cities, because this really is what creates the security risks in the area. Um, Tajikistan is kind of lopped off from Uzbekistan. Some say Stalin did it to punish the Tajiks. I mean, there's like, you, people have written books on this, but it, the difference between the Uzbek people and the Tajik people is mostly in the minds of the Uzbek and the Tajik peoples. Um, they, they really, these are the core nationalities of the region. The Indo-Europeans or Persian-speaking people were oasis settlers all the way through time. Turkic peoples settled on top of them. Um, most Uzbeks and Tajiks living in the Soviet period, um, it, unless they lived in the heart of Tajikistan, if you lived in any sort of ethnically mixed area, you were bilingual. And, and a lot of the decision of who's an Uzbek and who's a Tajik was really arbitrarily made at some point in history, um, usually by the families themselves. But this is really the core sedentary population of the region. And it's Uzbeks and Tajiks that really dominate Islamic Central Asia. Um, everybody else uh, were, didn't have the same seminarian tradition of religion. Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, I don't have that slide in with this thing. They have two different visions of the same history. The Tajik vision of history is, is the Samanid vision of history, which of course is a, you know, Iranian, Persian, whatever you're going to call the Indo-European speaking people. The Uzbek version of history is the history of Tamerlane um, or Timur, and both visions, in both, under both the Samanids and Timur, they had all the same territory. So again, this becomes important in looking at security. The Tajiks, which are a smaller and you'll see much poorer nation, um, lay claim, in fact, to most of Uzbekistan. Um, and the Uzbeks lay claim to most of the Fergana Valley. And this is the Fergana Valley. It goes up through here. And it includes a little bit of Kyrgyzstan, um, this area here. This is one of the most densely populated places in the Northern Hemisphere, for sure. It's certainly the most densely populated place in the former Soviet Union. I don't remember the population density offhand. This is where the Islamic revival has been. You'll see this is where the inter-ethnic fighting was in June in Kyrgyzstan, is in the Kyrgyz tip of the valley. Here, here's the Kyrgyz tip. This is all the valley. One of the problems, and you'll see it when we do electricity and grids, um, is <coughs> that in the mountainous countries, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, here's the capital city of Kyrgyzstan. Here's the second largest city of Kyrgyzstan. Note the high mountains between them. It takes, on the new roads, 11 hours um, to go. Same, Tajikistan, Dushanbe is the capital of, of Tajikistan, the second largest city in Tajikistan is, is Hojan, which I can't, this is, it's not on my map. Is it this one here? It's up in here. Um, this is Kokan, it's not on the map. It's always a problem, whatever map we choose. So it's right up in here. It also is, it, on the new road, it's 14 hours between Tashkent 
and Dushanbe. It's now eight or nine hours, but the tunnel gets flooded. There are three flights a day. Historically, and that's it. Um, and it costs $100 round trip, which is two months average salary. Uh, so you're really talking about inaccessible <coughs> areas to capital cities. Historically, this whole valley was ruled out of Tashkent. When I mean historically, I mean until 1991. So even though these cities were in different Soviet republics, effectively Moscow checked with the first, with the head of the Uzbek Communist Party before making appointments in these areas. So these areas were very poorly controlled by the countries. Okay, so that gives you at least, <coughs> you'll see that there was a common electricity and water system here, and that's really the biggest security problem the region faces, is security issues not created by Islamic terrorism, but, but risks that have to do with competition over scarce resources. Um, okay, Central Asia's future, now I'm gonna go through the slides, is a question of stability, risks, and political transition. Um, <coughs> this, the three pictures, quickly, this is, on the top, this is Astana, both Astana and Ashgabat, the capitals of Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, are sort of super modern cities based on like Gulf models. This is people trying to f flee Uzbekistan after the June riots. And this is a peaceful election rally in Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> when I first, when my assistant did the slides, I first thought this was people like inciting people to riot. This is Kyrgyz on a peaceful day. Um, okay. Again, to say that it's not like that you don't have a problem of, of contagion, you have a stability problem in Central Asia. The Central Asian countries are, will all face the loss of, of their founding leaders, effectively, um, and that's really the crisis. Now, I have a very talented research assistant who did the slides, and anybody who uses these slides, you're welcome to, to make use of them in any way, but you have to credit that you took them, and this, the sources are on every slide. So anything that has no source was done by Diana Galpern, my assistant. What she did in do, doing the pictures is to um, do, when they came to power and what they look like now, to give you some sense of really the increasing political risk and the increasing decrepitude of some of these figures. <laughs> no, I'm not, I mean, it sounds funny, but I'm really, I mean, I, I think that the biggest challenge leaders face in non-democratic systems are when they begin to fail physically fail, because they, if they don't give a power, then they have problems of competence, and that's really the risk you're finding in some of these countries. Okay, this is Imamali Rahman. He came to Tajikistan in 1992 at the time of the Civil War, and that's the other thing, one of the two points that shapes stability in Central Asia. The first is the fear of civil war. Tajikistan had a bloody civil war between 1992 and 1997, and a, full, and a year of full fighting across the country, and then five years of failure to get peace, where literally you could go to a dinner party and find that whoever your host was was killed the next day. I mean, I literally did that once, you know, that I had dinner with the head of the Academy of Sciences, and he was killed just a few days after we left. People were taken off buses, people were shot in front of their houses if they were seen as being partisans of one of, of the government faction or the three anti-government factions that lost but still didn't sign a peace treaty. So until you'll see the demographics as we go forward, but until memories of the civil war fully abate, then Tajikistan is unlikely to have another civil war. 
Um, and the people in Uzbekistan also remember it. I mean, you know, so this is one of the two imprints on the consciousness. This is Rachmon, and he really, today he would win as the most, um, if I say absurd, somebody may have to take this out of the speech, the most classically authoritarian figure in Central Asia today. He has, he's developing his own cult of personality at the time, and he's, all these people, he and Krivov have both tied part of state identity to religion. Um, he's now become, he, they did the Central Asian Muslims or Hanafi Muslims, and the founder of the Hanafi, they celebrated, the Tajiks did celebrate the um, anniversary, I think it was his 1273rd birthday of um, Ibn Hanaf or Imam Mazam as they call him. And, um, and it was a great money laundering event because they collected huge amounts of money and through this big festival that didn't cost much of, uh, didn't cost what they collected for sure. But he wrote three books on Imam, Imam Azam and what it meant to the Tajik people. But he had different authors write the three books and so he had three different points of view in these three books. Um, but, but he is, that's, that's what I mean by a classic autocrat. You know, he kind of pushes and this event was on, I was there, but it was also on all the national channels for, for four hours. I mean, it, he just, he, it's a cult of, it's not a full cult of personality, but his picture is all over. And he, if you go every three months, like I did as I was researching my book, you know, every three months there are new, new posters up trying, with his latest triumphs and everything. So it's, he is classic. And I joke that he has become Botoxed like Barry Bonds. Um, wait, I've gone too far. Um, because he really looks like, I mean, it was even before Bonds, he really looks Botox. This is Karimov, and he is considered to be the leader of the most repressive of the Central Asian regimes. But actually, he is, I mean, he is far from a classic autocrat. Um, his picture is almost nowhere except in government offices. But you get a sense, he's been in power also since 1990. Um, you get a sense of how old he is in this picture, and that's why we chose it. And this is not a bad picture of him. So we didn't go out looking for a deliberate picture where he looked terrible. You know, he looks terrible a lot of the time. <laughs> not even trying to be funny. <laughs> and you know, somebody's going to call me in in Uzbekistan and say, you said he looks terrible most of the time. And this is actually what, he's 73 and he's had Bassville health. Um, but he faces, and, and it's a really serious issue, and I'd like you to think about it, because, and if you have some solutions, the Uzbeks would be pleased to hear them. He really, <laughs> he's really interested in the political system being transformed before his death. I mean, he, and I'm not sure, he, he, he has run more terms than the Constitution allows, and the last time he just ran, um, just said, I've read the Constitution and it lets me run again, and so he did, even though it was, most people who would read Uzbek, Russian, or English, or any of the languages that the Uzbek Constitution is translated into would say that he probably didn't have the right to run. So again, if he chooses to run, and I think he comes up again in 2013 or 2014, he'll just do it. But, but, I, but he is actually, he recognizes that he's mortal, and and that isn't sarcastic, because I once said that the president of Turkmenistan, Turkmenbashi, was mortal in, in a presentation, and two ministers from Turkmenistan came over to me and said, we don't ever say that. You know, it's like, we can't say that. So, so he really, right, so, so just because a person is mortal doesn't mean they assume they're mortal. But he truly assumes he's mortal and is thinking a lot about what to do next. And, 
And people expect that there's a good chance that he will give up. I mean, a lot of people say he'll never give up power. And some, but he is also thinking about the solution for the transfer of power. And what he wants to do, what he's trying to do is take this very autocratic system and make it semi-autocratic or semi-authoritarian. And that's a very difficult task. I mean, I, and I'm not being sarcastic, because he's given more power to the parliament. He now, they now have three political parties. All of them are, are pro-government parties, but they're different by interest. So one's a party of workers, and one's a party of farmers, and one's a party of white-collar people. I mean, one's entrepreneurs, farmers, and then just like a civil service kind of party. And the reason they're doing it is to try to get debate. Now, of course, you could say they could have free and fair parties and everything. He's not ready for that. But, but the whole idea of, even, of getting people to debate political issues publicly, it's very, very hard. Or even parliamentarians, quasi-handpicked parliamentarians, you can tell them they can do it. You can say, I'm not going to arrest you. And, and everybody focuses on how many political prisoners there are in Uzbekistan, because it's the highest per capita in Central Asia, but it's no prominent political figures. There have been no prominent political figures jailed in that country since 1990, since before 1992. Um, there's people living in exile, but any political figure, there are two people under house arrest, but the elite has really not been arrested in any way, shape, or form. That doesn't mean he's not repressive, but it means that the people who are opting not to become semi-authoritarian are not frightened of going to jail. That's not really a risk, but it's very hard to take a controlled atmosphere and decontrol it. And that will be something that people in the Middle East begin to, if they do it, to have to play with. Okay, so he is, this is the other president. This is Nazarbayev, and again, again, you see the striking difference between the ages. Um, you know, this is him now. And he is one, it, it's ironic, in Kazakhstan, which is the wealthiest country, you'll see that in a couple minutes, this is a place where people don't talk about political change. In Uzbekistan, you meet Uzbeks outside of their office, even if they're high-ranking Uzbeks, and that's all people talk about. What's the process of transition likely to be like? Kazakhstan's a place where you don't talk about this, even though the country is much more liberal politically. It is just considered culturally, you know, to not be something you talk about. And there is an acute elite struggle in Kazakhstan, and they've just after this new election, which he, he won 95% of the vote, I mean, I would have gotten more votes than many of the vote-getter, the people who ran against him. You know, they were such political non-entities. And it's not that my fame and renown is known, but I probably, just for the novelty of voting for an American, would have gotten more votes than some of these people. <laughs> but, but he has not resolved the elite struggle, and he's just appointed a new prime minister, and it's the same man who was prime minister before, because everybody in both countries, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan, the expectation is whoever is the next prime minister is likely to be, is a good chance, is being tried out for the role of president. And the person who is prime minister is somebody who's not going to, he's not an ethnic Kazakh, he's not going to be a candidate for president. He's a very good prime minister, um, Karim Masimov. This is, this is Bernie Mukhamedov, and he replaced Turk Mubashi or Sapmarad Niyazov. And he has the biggest cult of personality. Nazarbayev has also been named leader of the people. He's leader of the nation now. He's El Bas, because um, Turkmenbashi was Turkmenbashi, head Turkmen. Uh, Bernie Mukhamedov hasn't taken it, but his picture, I haven't been there in almost a year, but his picture grew over two years ago and this year. 
and apparently it's grown more. But he doesn't put, like Turkmenbashi had a rotating gold statue of himself that hasn't been taken down yet, but you could swim under his shadow in one of the big hotels downtown because he was driven, he was solar driven. He was very, very energy efficient. He was a solar driven Turkmenbashi. And, and, you know, he just glowed all over downtown Ashgabat. But he hasn't done that yet, but, but I think we may be only years apart. And he actually is the least stable, potentially. He's had, it's not clear that he has fully consolidated his power. Okay, Kyrgyzstan, Rosa Tumbayeva came to power actually by herself. I mean, she named herself president during the coup, and that's what I'm going to talk about. She's my girlfriend, so it's a very strange situation for me to have a girlfriend who's head of state. I mean, it's, a, it's like you're not prepared for that at the University of Chicago. You learn all about things, you know, about all sorts of political changes and political institution building and stuff, but, but you're never given a course on what happens if a friend takes power. Um, it's different. <laughs> I have to say it's very different. Uh, but she is head of state, and, um, and, and that's what I want to talk about next. The thing that frightens Central Asia, when you talk about what's the impact, it's Kyrgyzstan is the fear that Central Asians have. So their referent is really the Kyrgyz situation repeating itself in other countries and causing unrest that spills over to other countries. Let me quickly take you through Kyrgyzstan's politics so you can understand why this is really the referent. Um, okay, Oscar Akayev here, and this is the only country in the world, it's like we're you know, almost by definition, if you come to power, you're likely to be my friend because it's so tiny. And if you've been going there for 25 years, it's like you just know everybody. Um, okay, Oscar Akayev came to power. He was elected in 1991, but he actually was brought to power in 1990 as head of the, as president of the country. The, the first competitive election was 91. He came to power as a result of a pooch within the Communist Party a year before the failed Communist Party pooch in in Moscow. So this is really significant. So it's like the Kyrgyz have, have been fractious all the way through and always the model, the risk posed by Kyrgyzstan, first you have the Tajik Civil War and then you have this risk of ouster that the Kyrgyz seem to represent always. Okay, he, uh, Felix Kulov being arrested. Kulov is very likely going to be the next president. Um, Kulov was his, and he looked different 20 years ago. We should have shown those two pictures too. He came to prominence when he was known as the People's General, and he came to prominence during the Osh riots in 1990, which were the worst riots in Soviet Central Asia in the period of the collapse. And, Akai, and Akayev made him his vice president, and then he jails him in 19, 2002, I think is what it, it said. And and so even though Akayev's whole position was he was going to be, he was the Thomas Jefferson of Central Asia, um, he began jailing his opponents. In, 2000, in 2005, during the period of color revolutions, he's ousted. Um, and he's ousted by Kormenbek Bakiev, who at last five years. And this is really, this is what the Central Asian leaders, starting in 2005, began to fear was they too would be pushed out in a color revolution. Um, he comes to power with a group of people and then it, almost immediately there's fights. They try to make a parliamentary republic out of Kyrgyzstan and he doesn't like it. And he was part of a group of people who took power in 2005 and they come to power at the end of a parliamentary election, which was not democratic. 
Um, and, and it's really sad because the Kiev, I mean, there are a lot of sad things about Kyrgyzstan, like most things. I mean, because it's, it, it is having, it's both joyous in their political triumphs and sad in their poverty and that they don't seem to get stability out of it. But he had said he was going to leave power in 2006. The 2005 parliamentary election was so he would have a parliament. It was, it was quasi-rigged, although it was the most democratic election in Central Asia up until that point, because he wanted a parliament that would give him immunity um, when he left. And so if he hadn't been asked, he was going to leave the next year. And Bakiev was likely to have won the election. But, but a I mean, people took to the streets, and they didn't shoot them, and he left um, in, not, in very ignominious circumstances. The people that Bakiev took power with, he, made, he brought Kulov out of jail, and he made peace with, he took power with a group of people. And then by 2007, he's already, like he plants, he arrests him with drugs planted on him, Tekibayev, um, whose name you don't need, but, but they, he was beginning to discredit the people as protests increased, he began discrediting the people that were protesting against him, jailing them. And in April 2010, right after the protests began building on the fifth year of the revolutionary anniversary, he began arresting all the, and he was at risk of being ousted, he began arresting all the opposition figures. And instead, again, there were protests that people didn't fully understand how the protesters got there, but the big thing was that when Akayev took power, nobody was hurt or killed in the protests. Eighty-seven people were killed in the protests in April of 2010. And he, he was forced to leave, although he didn't leave the country for several weeks. Everybody else but Kulov named themselves the interim government, all these other politicians who had come to power with him. And Otsimbaeva, Bakiev had named himself president. <laughs> and when he took over, he named himself the interim head and then ran as president. Rosa named herself to head the interim government, and she accepted, no, she accepted, I want to go back to her, okay. She's president until December 2011. There'll be new, there were parliamentary elections in October, there'll be presidential elections next October. Kyrgyzstan now is a parliamentary system. The prime minister is now head of state, she has national security functions, and she's vowed she's going to leave. Um, as when her term ends, her one-year term, because she wants to be the first, not only the first woman in Central Asia who is president, but she wants to be the first person who leaves Central Asian office. And she will leave. I mean, there's no question about that. And the opposition, other people who want to be president wouldn't let her stay anyway. I mean, but, but she will leave. She wants that precedent. But the big thing was that there were huge riots in, in Austin. We'll talk about those at the very end. So there, in June, right after, two months after they took power, there was still no effective security force in the South, and Kyrgyz and Uzbeks went at each other, and there were about 2,000 deaths. That was, ten, that was tenfold what there was 20 years previously, and I have a slide about that at the end. Okay, these are the risks in the region, and I want to go through this stuff fairly fast. Okay, the risks are youth, unemployment, and underemployment. Um, okay. Central Asian population is one of the youngest populations in the world. And you see that the age group 15 to 24, um, only in Kazakhstan is there, Egypt has a higher proportion of youth in that age group. 
only more than Kazakhstan. Every place else, it's a higher proportion of youth than in Egypt. So we talk about the Middle East population is young, the Central Asian population is even younger, making underemployment and unemployment the major risks that all these states face in much the same way that it is in the Middle East. Uh, and the, the population under 15 is, is even larger. It's the median age in Central Asia and Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan is, is something like between 15 and 16 and change. You know, it's right in that period. So you really have, you have a, an unemployment problem now and it's much worse. The economy, again, the economy is, you see this huge disparity between Kazakhstan's economy, and he had had the goal of being by 2010 one of the 50 most powerful economies in the world. And he has just, he, uh, these are 2008 figures, so he may have just made it by 2010, but even if he hasn't quite, being 51 is a pretty good, you know, it's, it's so Kazakhstan's economy dwarfs the rest of the region. Uzbekistan's is the next largest economy, and, and it has twice the population almost that Kazakhstan does, and it has roughly a sixth of the GDP. Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan don't have economies, and I'm not really being sarcastic, because this is really a major challenge. How do you create sustainable development? How do you employ this population? You're going to see that they choose hydropower, and that's not such a, I mean, that's a problematic solution. Um, but they have GDPs that are the size of most people's debts. Um, here you get again the per capita figures. Uh, the per capita figures, again, Kazakhstan's figure is way higher than everything else. And one of the challenges you have, the Kazakhs have said that they want their, and, and it's now closer to 10,000 by the 2010 figures. The Kazakhs have said that they want by, I can't remember what year before 2020, an average salary of 15 or $16,000 a year. The Kyrgyz, some, one of the politicians is, who said he's going to run for president, he, he has said that Kyrgyzstan should have an average income by 2016 when his term would end of, of, of $9,000 a year. It's like people come out and promise people things you can't have. You cannot inf increase the, the average income by tenfold in five years with no prospect of discovering, you know, the fountain of youth in your, in your basement. I mean, there's like nothing that they failed to discover that could create that kind of differential. Okay, percent of population living above the poverty line. This is, these were the most recent figures we could get when we did the slide. It, it's very deceptive um, because the populations, first of all, this is still the, the dollar a day and not three dollar a day figures. And also, in some of the cases, the Uzbek case probably, the value of, um, we call it. it. It includes some correction for uh, subsidies given by the government, effectively. Uh, but but again, you have really across the board 40 to 50 percent of the population living at at a dollar a day and, and under. And when you go to three dollars a day, because this was a if you go to three dollars a day, it's a, you know in Tajikistan you get a figure of closer to eighty percent. Uh, Kyrgyzstan would be sixty something. Um, Uzbekistan it would be roughly the same. 
But Uzbekistan still has a controlled economy and keeps its borders closed, a partially state-managed economy. Okay, also, you know, that the graft and corruption is a big problem throughout the area. And this slide really shows this is all from all of East and Cent East. This is all former communist land. And so it includes the states that are in the EU and not. And you get from Ukraine on, you just like go into a whole other, another plane of corruption. Um, these are enterprise surveys from the World Bank. Tajikistan is the worst, but like Uzbekistan, it's no great shakes in all of them. The solution really that has been taken is migration. I mean, one of the major sources of income in these kind of, of income is remittances, and I think the next slide show that. That what they face is really the challenge of, and, and this is from October 2006, and it's before the financial crisis of Russia. It shows the patterns of migration. The Germans going from Kazakhstan are ethnic Germans who, who were deported there by Stalin, who lived in the Russian Empire from the 18th century. Um, but it, it measures figures of th streams of 300,000 and more in the wide figures and 30,000 per year in the smaller figures. In Uzbekistan, I, I have the, this is, Russian population is full. Oh, this is a different set of points. I'm not sure if the economics. Yeah, okay. The remittances is a portion of GDP. Um, these are earlier figures. They're from 2005. By the time you get to 2008 before the crisis, it's even more. By 2008, it was about 40% uh, of the GDP of Tajikistan was remittances, about 35% from Kyrgyzstan. That's not on, because it had gone up from the the 2005 figures to, to 2008. And in Uzbekistan, it's about a quarter. Um, <coughs> one of the things, and, and this is a big development issue in the region, I mean, what you find, you see population growths for all, for, the, for four of the Central Asian countries. I don't know why we didn't get Kyrgyzstan on there. <coughs> and Russia. Russia's population is falling and the Central Asian population is continuing to increase. Um, so they, there is this potential synergy. I mean, not only is Russia importing the labor, but there's a, a long time synergy possible, at least for two generations, between labor coming in from, from Central Asia to meet labor demands in Russia. And the other source of labor is China, which Russia doesn't like nearly as well. Here's the estimation of, of migration coming from Central Asia total migration and migration from Central Asia going into the Russian Federation. Um, but the, the challenge is Russian language use and instruction is decreasing in Central Asia. And, and there has been a developmental bias against continued Russian language education. And most of the international funding and assistance money that's gone into education has gone into national language education because that's what people want. So, there's been enormous amounts of money spent converting textbooks from Russian language to national language. And you still have the problem, I mean, you have a, a very seriously declining and decaying school plant throughout the region. And people were very hesitant to take assistance from the Russian Federation to continue the level of Russian language teaching. In the last two or three years, that has really changed dramatically. Russia is now welcome in all five Central Asian countries to provide free Russian language education, although it's a big source of graft coming out of the Russian Federation, so a lot of the money hasn't met its 
its goal. And there's a huge demand now for Russian language tutoring. I always joke that when I retire, if I can't make it on my pension, I'll move to Uzbekistan and teach Russian because my Russian, which isn't perfect, is certainly good enough to teach in Uzbekistan, to teach Russian there because the Kyrgyz and Kazakhs have preserved Russian more, so I couldn't get a job as a Russian language teacher there. But it, but it does speak, I mean, anybody with good, anybody with a capacity to teach who speaks Russian as a native language can earn decent money now as a tutor. But there is no focus program of skill, improving skills in Russian to make the Central Asians more likely to get skilled jobs than, than unskilled jobs. And this leads to ethnic tensions in the Russian Federation where Central Asians feel like they are not, they're not treated as badly as Caucasians, but they do feel like that there's prejudice against them and they're abused by their own brigade leaders who take them to Russia and steal part of their money as, as fees. The biggest crisis, and I don't want to go like more than three or four more minutes, the biggest challenge that the region has is this tension between oil and water, um, oil, gas, and water. Central Asia, uh, there's more stuff on this map, uh, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are, high are mountainous countries, as you've seen that are the, um, have the headwaters to the Amudaya and Sirdaya River. Um, and Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan are energy producing states. Um, thus, this gives you a sense of the reserves, and that gives you the production. Okay. The, ca the key thing for income, Kazakhstan is an oil producing state in terms of its income. Turkmenistan is a gas producing state. You see Turkmenistan is number up there as the fourth largest producer. Uh, Uzbekistan is way down. It only, it's almost to the very end. It's that last arrow. But in actuality, that, that measures the size of reserves and that's why everybody talks about Turkmenistan because it has such major oil and gas reserves. And, and it is the fourth largest in the world in terms of proven reserves. Um, but in terms of actual production, you see Uzbekistan's in orange production and consumption. If you look at Turkmenistan, it's green. Okay, in 2008, Turkmenistan produced almost just slightly more gas than Uzbekistan. So Uzbekistan doesn't have huge reserves, but it is a major gas producer. It consumes a huge portion of its gas reserves, but it serves, it provides the electricity the Uzbek gas has historically provided the electricity for most of Central Asia. Um, and that, okay, you see the electricity. This is going to tell you about the water and the grids. What the Central Asian system was, was that the Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan create, had, as I say, they were upstream, they were upstream states. They would let, they would do river run, they would hold it in big, res, in big reservoirs and release the water in the summer, creating water for irrigation for the cotton economy of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, part of Kyrgyzstan and part of Kazakhstan. And the water, when it got released, produced hydroelectric power. And there were some giant dams built and planned in the last part of the Soviet system. There is a single grid for all of Central Asia. And you know, if you remember when the East Coast lost its electricity twice, when a single grid, when part of a grid goes down, the rest of the grid goes down. So it's a unified grid. It was until November 2009, a unified grid system for the region. Uzbek gas supported the grid in the winters. 
and it still supports the grid in the winters. It's just not a single grid you, have to, you buy it from Uzbekistan. And the water supplies the electricity in the summer, um, for, including for Uzbekistan. But gas prices went up for the last 15 years, and, there, and water is not sold. Um, so the upstream water users, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, wanted to see Soviet-era plans for building four giant wells, gi giant hydroelectric stations completed. These hydroelectric stations were designed in order to have double the amount of irrigated agricultural land. They were not, and they were going to sell, sell the surplus electricity. I'm almost out of time. I want to just like say two things about the hydroelectric stations, because this is the developmental answer for Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan is to say, yes, you should produce this hydroelectric power and sell it to neighboring states to make money. And you can keep cheap electricity and you don't have to buy gas from Uzbekistan and pay them world market prices. The only problem, there are several problems with this. The first is, and if anybody's interested, I can give you more details in the questions. The, the Tajiks want to build this giant reservoir at the top of their you can't see it on this slide, the very top of the Amudaya, which will have the largest reservoir in the world and for 10 years will disrupt the flow of water in summer into Uzbekistan. And now there's questions of getting international backing to do it. They say they're going to do it without international backing and the World Bank says they will only fund it if, if it is not creating an ecological risk in Uzbekistan. But the Uzbeks, the question is if peace can be maintained if this is built without international approval. The other thing I want to say about hydroelectric stations is that if you don't, ha it's like natural gas. If you don't have a market, it's a huge debt for the country. So it costs a lot of money, and you really need to have, um, you need to have energy sector reform at minimum in central, in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Kyrgyz have gone further with it, and you also have to have an identified market that will give you long-term commitments to pay for this. And it's not clear, certainly in the Tajik case, that market is Pakistan and Afghanistan. And it's not clear that that will occur. Um, okay. This is my last set of slides to talk about terrorism. I've now told you all the risks that exist in the region. The risks that we talk about most frequently with regard to Central Asia is, this is a list of all the terrorist attacks that have been in the region and the number of deaths. Okay. But to date, this has been a relatively quiet area. There was this horrible ethnic violence in, in Osh last year, but it had nothing to do with Islam or jihadist movements. Um, there has been, over the last three years, uh, there were peaks of bombing of, of attacks in 2004 and 2009. What people are concerned with is the increased risk if the U.S. and NATO leave Afghanistan before there is a long-term peace solution there. Because most people in the region, and I agree with them, believe that the NATO solution will be a regime that is capable of ensuring some degree of internal stability in Afghanistan, but there will not be the test of maintaining external security. That There will not be a test that it poses no risk to its neighbors. And that's one of the reasons that we've seen an increase in violence from 2009, in 2009, and some more attacks in 2010, because 
people are, are again leaving from central from Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and Islamic Jihadist Union people going into Tajikistan and launching attacks in Tajikistan and from Tajikistan. That said, the last point of this is the ethnic violence. The last point I want to make, and I'll, I'll just spend a second on the ethnic violence, is really I don't believe that terrorists, the risk of terrorism is one that will be a regime ender in any place in the region. Um, you know, I, I just don't see this. We talk about terrorism in Europe and when there were the bombings in Madrid or the bombings that got deflated in, in London or, or that went through the 7-7 or even 2001 here. It was never a question of regimes being brought down. I don't think that this has the capacity to bring down regimes. It destabilizes. It gets them to overreact as they did in Andijan in, in Uzbekistan in 2005. But this, you know, this vision of southern Kyrgyzstan in 2010, this is the Osh riots in, in, two, in 1990 versus the Osh riots in 2010. In South Kyrgyzstan in 2010, 450,000 people tried to flee the country in a two-day period. Now that is unreal to imagine. And the Uzbeks took in women and children, and they didn't take in men, and then they sent them back. When the Kyrgyz wanted them back, they, they didn't want them to stay, and they sent most of them back. Um, and some of this population is now leaving, but most of them are leaving for Russia, the ones that are leaving. This is the destabilizing risk. Any sort of ma you know, ethnic protest that causes mass migration would be the biggest source of, of conflict in Central Asia. And what I worry about is that if Karimov doesn't have a solution to stability, to, to succession, and if there's a period of instability when he dies, or if he, if he leaves office when he's alive, I don't think you'd have a period of instability. But if he dies and there's a transfer of power that way and you have a period of instability, then I think that the real risk is that people will try to destabilize southern Uzbekistan on the other side of that border that I showed you at the very beginning. <clears throat> because this is a major, I think we took the narcotic slides out, this is a major narco-traffic route and that especially if Afghanistan becomes a place that is more lawful, there will be an interest in having a place that is lawless. Um, and that really would be the real risk in this region. And thank you. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. The seeming lack of uh, terrorist activities in that region, can you assess the importance of what, in my mind, I call the Islamic uh, culture being, quote unquote, Russified by Moscow? That, of any um, I, I mean, I'm just finishing this book. I mean, I finished doing now. I'm putting footnotes and cleaning a book on the history of Islam in Uzbekistan. And I've been, I started going to the mosques in this, in the, I mean, I went the first time in the 70s, but since 1990, I spent a lot of time going in and out of the mosques and in Uzbekistan. I've come away with the conclusion that Islamic culture in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan wasn't Russified, that, that it really, 
that we don't really understand the, the survival mechanisms that Islam had um, in Central Asia. I, I mean, in the Russian Federation it had some, but especially in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan it had enormous survival mechanisms. I, I don't think that terrorism, I, I mean, I, I don't think terrorism could unseat the regimes, but certainly terrorism is, is a potential, because it's so close to Afghanistan, it's a risk any place where there's a Muslim population. I think that the answer is really that most Muslims in Central Asia are really pleased with the return of Islam to public life, um, as opposed to Islam being something you had to conceal. It's just part of normal life now. And, and so, no, I don't think, I think Islam plays an, an enormous role in these, especially in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and increasingly in southern Kyrgyzstan. But I think it's one that because it's, it, it is being, it, it's one that is being, the state's trying to manage it, but it's not being managed by the state, I don't think. It is being largely managed by this rebirth of, of mosques in public life, of clerics in public life, and that that, you know, that diffuses any risk of terrorism being the source of taking down a regime. In the beginning, in the mid-1990s, when there was hysteria or schizophrenia or some form of, of like total, I mean, we see it now, you've seen it for weeks now in the Middle East. In, in the former Soviet Union, beginning in late 1989, early 1990, you had a, this hysteria that went three or four years, you know, that this constant political shuffling and turmoil of various sorts. In that period, yes, it's exper you know, Islamic, that was the period, like you found that in Chechnya where a nationalist movement morphed into something else. That was the period where religious-inspired violence had a capacity to change states. In 20 more years, it may again be. I'm betting in places like Uzbekistan it won't be because I think the state will continue to expand the role of religion and religion will continue to play a major role in public life. Um, so I think it's exactly the opposite. I think it's not because religion was diminished. It's because religion stayed healthier than people gave it credit for. And because it stayed healthier, it was able to reassert itself in public space pretty quickly. Um, if it had been dead, you wouldn't have 2,000 new mosques, you know, mosques increased tenfold in Uzbekistan in a two or three year period. Um, there are now 13 Islamic secondary, I mean, junior colleges in Uzbekistan. Uh, you know, it's like they're producing more people with clerical education than a religious establishment can absorb. And, and these people are allowed to get jobs as policemen, procurators, school teachers. It's like you have, you have an Islamic revolution going on and one that's going on under state support and that doesn't, I think, pose a risk of, of threatening the state. So, um, but I know that what I'm saying goes against sort of the, the popular wisdom about the place. Um, in the back. Okay, 
I, I mean, I should say, first, I'm not, I don't speak anything fluently but Russian. I speak, I studied Turkish for several years in grad school. I understand a lot of Uzbek, but I, you know, I work with men to work in communities. I long ago discovered I will cross borders alone and I travel with an assistant now because you should always have another human being to travel with when you're crossing these borders by foot and stuff, which is what you have to do in most of these places if you're going because you can't take cars across borders. So, but other than that, I travel with men. I mean, because I'm, I'm a Western Jewish woman going <laughs> into mosques, you know. Um, I, it's like that's a lot of things going wrong right there. <laughs> the Jewish being the least of it, for sure. But I, I always dress very modestly if I'm in the countryside. Um, I, in the cities, there's no reason to dress modestly at all. Um, but in the culture, if you're a woman and a foreigner, they can treat you as a man. So they have the option, if I'm going to like a rural community and I'm interviewing a cleric, he won't make me sit with the women or anything. If he's invited me to a party afterwards, well yeah, then I'm going to sit with the women. I mean, then I'm expected to have to sit with the women. But as a, as a Western scholar, it, it, you are in most social situations accepted as a man. I mean, at a habit, I never reach my hand out to shake hands with anybody. Um, because I'm so used to being in Muslim societies where I will never assume that a man w will shake my hand. So it's like if he extends a hand, I will extend a hand, obviously, you know, and, and just like in the former Soviet Union, I mean, Central Asians, most of them are still not, the, the people you deal with in government are not only secular, but they're still in kissing class because Russians always kiss you when you see them and everything. So, I mean, kiss three times in a European fashion. So, so it's like you stand there and you don't know. Am I going to extend my hand or am I going to get kissed? And it's always one or the other. Um, you're either not going to be touched or you're going to be hugged and kissed. And so it, but you just, I've always not been assertive about it. I've, I have worked extensively with male researchers. I've worked with different male researchers, which I find is useful. I don't like being dependent on one person and one person's views. But, you know, I've never tried to put it in their face that you have to accept me. I, I'm a much friendlier, easygoing person in Russian. I mean, I have a, I'm kind of cute in Russian because I make mistakes and it, like you don't take me so seriously. So, I, you know, it's like, so that makes it less stressful. I think you had a question yeah, first uh, and then. I, I want to thank you very much for coming. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that he's trying to put some mechanisms into place to facilitate some kind of governmental reform. Mm -hmm. I hesitate to call it democratic reform uh, for, for after his reign. Um, I mean, for quite a while, analysts were saying that he was sort of grooming one of his daughters to, to take over, but apparently he's pissed that that's going to to the, the wayside. Uh, she wanted... Yeah, there was some scandals and such. Yeah. Well, I don't think he yet has a plan. I mean, he's really been, and, and as I say, it's something people talk about there all the time. You know, it's like, I don't think he ever would have put his daughter into power. Um, she thought she might get to power. 
And she's a very impressive woman. I mean, she actually really is. Well, she's overreached, but she's, she's smart and she's very articulate. I mean, she has a Harvard degree and an MA, you know, and she's very articulate in English, not shockingly. But, but Uzbekistan would never accept a female president, and he understands his own country. But I think that he really is trying to have, uh, I mean, I think he feels that, I'm sure he feels that he was the most competent person to head Uzbekistan and that whoever succeeds him by definition will be less competent. And that's what he's concerned about. And that he's trying to build, he wants a system in which it, there is a strong president and a strong prime minister, but the president will still be stronger than the prime minister. Th this current prime minister is not weak and has his own circle, but I don't think, a lot of people don't want to see him succeed. He comes from, from Samarkand and the cotton mafia, for loss of a better word, and, and he has his own circle. Um, but I think that he wants a, cons a, a government, you know, a consensual figure to be prime minister. And there's a lot of, you know, it's a very corrupt system. It's a system with very strong political clans, not ethnic clans, but um, it, it's going to be very tricky. And I think that's one of the reasons why he wants to develop Parliament as a debating place, that he really wants to encourage public debate on structured lines of, you know, they, they're moving towards economic reform. It's the most unreformed economy other than Turkmenistan. Um, and that's going to hurt the cotton, the, the cotton mafia for sure, because they still have state control prices on cotton, but cotton's getting less profitable. And they still have a partially controlled currency, and the exchange of that, you make a lot of money if you have access to hard currency, you can play the difference in the exchange. So there are powerful incentives for those that control those things not to do it. But, but yeah, he's, I mean, he's trying to liberalize, the, uh, not make a liberal country, but, but to liberalize the system. That they've made some improvements in the judiciary. Um, there is now a defense lawyer system. People are afraid to be vocal defense lawyers, except if they're taking high-profile cases. So if you're the defense lawyer for a thief, you're frightened. If you're, not, if you're the defense lawyer for a human rights activist, this is how you're going to get attention, and you're more likely to get a good defense lawyer for that. You know, they're introducing some changes in the procuratorship. It's all slow, and the question is, is this fast enough for Uzbekistan? My instincts are, unless somebody makes real trouble in the Fergana Valley, it probably is fast enough for Uzbekistan. It sure wouldn't be fast enough for us. Um, and, but it, it's hard to do. It's hard to, to, to open up authoritarian systems and still keep them managed. And, and I, I don't see any successor to him being willing to have an unmanaged system. What people want there, what the, I'm not talking about the human rights activists or the foreign-based opposition elite, but like people that I know that would like to see Uzbekistan reform, they want economic reform and protection of property. And you have to open a political system up to have that. You want, that's their understanding of rule of law. But it's tricky. It will all depend on the second and third presidents unless there's real, you know, rebellion. But the country's not well connected either. Tashkent's not the heart of Uzbekistan the way Cairo is the heart of Egypt. Um, you know, so the population's not, it, it's den it lives very densely in the Fergana Valley, but then it's like an eight-hour drive from Bukhara to Tashkent and a four-hour drive from Samarkand. So all these pockets 
um, of high population that would have trouble connecting in a national way. But it's not Tunisia either, although that's the fear that Uzbekistan could create itself into some sort of, you could have real regional conflict the way you did in Tajikistan. I know you had a question. Okay. Yeah, I, I should have talked about the latter. I'll talk about the women quickly and then the technocracy. I mean, those of us that do centralize, Joe, we talk about the declining position of women because, of course, in striking contrast to the Middle East, women have a much higher position in Central Asia, but they're losing relative stature because they're, in the Soviet period, I mean, when there were, I've been friends with, in Tajikistan with a woman who was, the highest-ranking woman under Rahmon ever. Um, she was a deputy prime minister for a while, and she was a minister. And, and all of her girlfriends were first secretaries of rayons in the Communist Party, and they're all friends. I mean, it's like a sorority of former senior communist women. You don't have that in the next, next generation. Most of the women that are very ambitious have become entrepreneurs. So you do have female entrepreneurs. But you have declining female education. I mean, you still have universal literacy. You still still have girls having only a slightly lower high school completion rate than boys. But it's much harder for women to break into this new post-communist world every place. Um, Kyrgyzstan has been the exception, and Rosa's, it, it too is going the other way, and Rosa's now very aggressively promoting women. The only female member, only female cabinet officer in, in Kazakh history for the last decade just lost her job in the last turnaround. She'll get another good job, but she, she has a glass ceiling and she's a wonderfully talented woman. Um, but there are glass ceilings most places for women. There are virtually no women in public life in Uzbekistan save in entrepreneurship. In the communist period, there were women who were in the Uzbek Central Committee. I mean, in the you know the equivalent of the Politburo ministers and very senior. So, so that this is a fight in the region to keep women's position high. Um, the technocracy is 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 interesting, and it's still again language plays a big role. Um, the decision to move away from Russian is slowing it in some, in some ways because you don't have a lingua franca across borders. There is a, you're right, it's like it's a 5% versus 95% in all these countries. And, and the Uzbeks, again, ironically, um, have wired Tashkent. You know, there's like a window, what do you call it, this, this whole wireless network in Tashkent. Most people don't have the money to have it in their houses, but if you do, it's, you have almost entire access. Yes, they're, they're using Chinese filters, but everybody knows how to go around them. To finish this book on Islam, 
we, I hired uh, somebody who had fluency, who's back, a former Peace Corps person, who, just to do survey of what's on the web and, and, and the content of some of the sites, you know, I can see what's on the web myself, but we did hits on some of, we went back over all the fundamentalist clerics who now are entirely on YouTube. Ten years ago you had trouble, you had to get illegal tapes and find ways to, now they're all on YouTube. And there are tens of thousands of hits on some of these sites because it's blocked and it, YouTube's not blocked, so the Islamist sites, the foreign radical sites are blocked. People know how to get around that too. But you don't need anything to get around YouTube. But it's still not a way of communicating within countries except in Kyrgyzstan. In Kyrgyzstan, Twitter was a critical part of this last revolution. And Kazakhs use cell phones for traffic. I mean, you have what you, we could go on now and see, you know, what the traffic was around Almaty. It's, it's the time difference means there would be no traffic. It's in the middle of the night. But it's an interesting exercise to do during peak traffic time because everybody is Twittering. And I mean, there are all these sites that you can just get the traffic. They all speak to each other that way. But with those two exceptions, it's still not, um, in, it, it's not a tool of mass mobilization yet any place. I think we should stop there. Uh, thank you very much.